I hope you enjoyed part two of our two-part special celebrating one year of the Inspiring Schools podcast. Today I welcome Dr. Alex Curtis, Head of School at Choate Rosemary Hall in the USA. In this episode, I discuss idealism and activism with a head of school that helped inspire John F. Kennedy's most famous speech, the challenges around diversity and inclusion, sustainability in schools, and keeping a traditional school future facing. I want to cover sustainability because it's become quite a buzzword in independent schools and even across the media, everyone's talking about sustainability. Choate seems to fuse it in every part of the school. What does sustainability mean to you and Choate? It starts with that question of what's that term? Because it's a brilliant catch-all. We actually spend a lot of time thinking about all the different uses. And as you say, the beauty of that word covering so much means that we can infuse it throughout the school. But it's worth breaking down perhaps some specifics. I mean, there's the obvious one, right, for us. I mean, I suppose I'll start at a high level, which is sustainability means ensuring that whatever it is is going to last, that you're leaving, you're not using up all the resources, whatever those resources are now, and not leaving it either some for afterwards, but actually not just some better for afterwards and for next generations to come. And I think that we find ourselves in the spot where we are because that was not on, definitely not on previous generations' mind enough. It was take care of now and worry about the future later. So for us, sustainability is can these systems last and work. So it fits into a million things in the school. The big one is, is climate change, taking care of our world today, saving our world, frankly, and making sure there's a world for our students to live in and they, their children and their grandchildren. And so that enters all parts of our world, but also financial sustainability for our school. Um, we worry a lot about tuition and making sure we're accessible and the financial models of independent schools, boarding schools in particular don't feel particularly sustainable and solving that long-term so that I leave for my successor and then they leave for their successor, a better financial situation is critical. I would argue particularly last two years have shown sort of institutional sustainability. I'd actually say in that, I'm talking about the people that make the institution. What we're asking of everyone is healthy and doable. And COVID really was a big wake-up call of that. Is what we ask in a boarding school reasonable for our students, but particularly for our adults? And actually facing that during COVID, where it was so, and still remains, we're not through. How did we make it workable? It means that you actually have to start getting to grips with how do you make the whole system sustainable? And, and to their credit, our faculty have used their voices in asking those questions. And I'm not sure we've, we've answered them yet. We're working, we've come up with some answers, and I think we have a lot more to go. So I think it underpins everything. Sustainability in all those terms is just a basic principle of our school. And is that something that you constantly measure and target and, you know, report on? Because, you know, one of those things, it's, it can't just be a, it feels like a corporate line, you know, that is a corporate social responsibility. You just feel like I need to say something. We're doing some recycling. We're not, you know, maybe we're carpooling, but, you know, what are you doing and, what, and how do you measure that? Yeah. So, I mean, we do, we're very goal-oriented school, particularly our board of trustees. I think our board of trustees we created a strategic plan in 2013. We have a new one now. We put implementation items in those and we, we put benchmark dates. We had, most of them are ongoing, right? You can't actually put completion dates. Because so when you say things like that discourse question, that's never going to be done, right? But we can ask for in a year or two years for benchmarks to be reached where we have a certain number of programs and then check-ins, are those going well? Do they need to be looked at again? We are action-oriented. I don't, I don't like the idea of big statements that get out there either on a website or in a strategic plan, then put in a drawer to be remembered. And I think 
we have people whose responsibility is to go back and be checking on us and making sure we're hitting those goals. That was one of the things our task force in equity inclusion. It was be specific. Lofty ideas are great. I want them, but I want to know short-term ways, medium-term and longer-term ways that we're going to achieve these goals. So in each of these areas, we have goals for our climate sustainability. We're actually reviewing them now to make them more aggressive. We never had a goal that was to get to uh, carbon neutral. That's not okay. Cutting down to being 30% of 2004 levels or whatever those things. And they were set in the 2040s and 2050s. We're about to get a push goal for 2030 and then a net you know, carbon neutral goal for 2050, if not before. So we want to be aggressive in those fronts. Our board on the financial sustainability, whether it's in fundraising or other models of raising dollars, we've got goals specifically to do those things. So you know, we've had a position of a director of institutional research so that we can be measuring along the way. And there's human capital in that. So we're also, we do climate surveys of our adults to try and get a sense of you know, how they're feeling, which obviously in the last couple of years has been, they've been remarkable and saved the school and we're grateful to them. These have not been easy times. So it's no good just saying it. There must be times when, as fast as we think we're moving, things do take time to happen in school. So I'm sure for, you know, there are times when it feels like it's, it's glacial, but for a school, we're moving very, very quickly. And I think hopefully trying to get some points where people know where we're heading makes a big difference in that. But also with technology changing and everything changing around the world, you know, having those long-term goals are great. But, you know, what you just find is that this generation are very adaptable and kind of flexible and they pivot anyway. And that's what we've got to learn to do. And so having ambition to kind of hit that goal and maybe being carbon neutral by that date, there were so many unknowns on that journey, you know, and it's making that right step forwards because then suddenly you, you introduce a new supplier it has a supply chain, you know, it's constant recalculation of everything. And actually, what I really enjoyed reading about what you do in your curriculum, you know, around a lot of student led focus, they have to drive it, they really get it. And actually, they'll know how to drive that change that making a sustainable difference moving forward. Do you think that Choate's approach is a model for other schools? And can it be picked up and ported and shared? I hope they were part of that broader conversation. I, I think it's very dangerous if you're a school with great resources and opportunities to think that what you're doing is the right thing and the other schools can't do it. I'm on the board of the Association of Boarding Schools. I'm very involved in that. I go to our National Association of Independent Schools Conference because we can learn from each other. There's incredibly innovative things coming from all types of schools. Having said that, we do have great resources historically, we have great fundraising opportunities. We've got an amazing facility. That gives us an obligation to be pushing ourselves and trying and sharing the results of that. But with the privilege that those things bring, there is that responsibility to look beyond and not selfishly just keep them to ourselves. So in that respect, I think we have responsibilities to be a model, but I don't think we would expect just because we're a school with this reputation knowledge that necessarily that means we have the answers, but we can be a place that gathers information that maybe has more flexibility to try things out and share with people of like, ooh, that thing wasn't so good. That was great. And when I do present at various conferences, one of the things I try to do is show how things can be scaled in different ways. So some of the things that we discovered about student centers or our math computer science robotics building don't have to be at the same size or scale or approach. They're basic principles. And if you can break them down to principles, and we have the chance to try them out, then we have a responsibility to share and, and then learn from our sharing, learn back. So it's dialogue. Yeah. And it's also being able and confident to share failure because the great thing with great schools is that 
you try things and not everything works. And great leaders are just as quick to say, by the way, I tried 10 things. You're seeing what really worked, but these 10 things didn't work. And do you feel, again, a responsibility to share, share that and not feel that you get it right just because of your kind of prestige and tradition? The only way you get it right is not to take any risks and, or not to do anything. And then you stay in the same spot. And that, even that may be wrong. I'm actually very much the first. I definitely know uh, there's a lack of perfection here. And that's a good thing. You know, so for us, in Brain, we have a one-to-one iPad program. We had a choice of planning for three years and trying to get everything bang on right and doing it all. And then at the end of those three years, everything would have changed. You never catch up. And so we sort of went to our board, our faculty, everyone, students and said, we think there's something here. This is our best. We've done all the research. It's not, we went slapdash and didn't try. We put the work in and we said, we're going to get the feedback and we're going to adjust it over the next three or four years and throw things out that don't work, you know, whether they're requirements or whatever those pieces are. And we saw that program adjust. It's actually now sort of growing at a slower pace because learning as you went got you to a certain point. And that, but you have to be willing to let things go. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm an architectural historian. That's where my background's in and architecture. And that's, you know, buildings are living organisms in many ways. And if you, if you look at buildings that's been around for a long time, there are very few hard to find that are the same as when they're built. You plan as much as you can. You, you erase lines and change things on plans. But then at some point, you have to put it out there. And then the users actually define how it works. And at some point, you come in, you put an addition on, you knock it all down. You do all the, the things. And so when we put buildings up now, we try and build them to represent the point you're making with all the flexibility in the world. So that when our students and our faculty use them, if it's not working, we change it. Yeah, and that's having a, a kind of the future school vision and you know how, how you put buildings together they can't just be full of technology because I think we we completely missed the point of how the humans interact and your kind of progressive way that you an iterative way that you launch technology into a school it has to be the only way forward because you have to iterate and figure out what works and it can't be one size fits all because technology is the enabler it's a lever and actually great people pull it in to make their lessons or their experience better for the students and interestingly, you talked about architecture. I mean, I studied the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL, and I'm about to buy a 250-year-old sort of Georgian grade two listed property. And so I've got to keep the history of it all, but I've got to bring it up to date to be fit for the next 250 years. So I'm in that kind of that battle where I've changed, but there's so much there that isn't there. I want to talk to you about you know, being Choate being a future-facing school, because as a leader, how do you get the right balance between honouring church tradition and history and then fulfilling a vision where you want the school to be because you have to be relevant for the kids that are coming through? I think I may have taken a little bit easy when I was applying for a head of school jobs and I put in for Choke because I knew I want to keep growing. One of the things actually we say to our students when we do admission visits and speeches is the school you enter will not be the same school you graduate from. We're going to keep growing and changing. So I knew I had to go to a school that that was going to be okay. And so I looked for a school that that had been part of its tradition. And so Cho, for all sorts of reasons, from its foundation, from how we co-educated, our endowment size, has always been sort of willing to change and grow. I mean, we had a student from Japan in the 1900s. We had students from Bangkok in 1964. We taught Arabic and Russian in the 1960s. I mean, who was doing that? We were one of the first computers with a mainframe. They connected to the internet early. Like the Kola Environmental Center was one of the last things done before I came. It's actually part of the DNA of the school. And so that's a huge advantage for me is that there's a willingness to do it. We're not 
pushing, there isn't the sense of we've always done it that way. And so any change is met immediately with resistance. That's nice is that we, as a result, we don't have to do things in these giant leaps and throw things out. We can iterate and we can keep traditions, but actually change them in some ways to be more modern versions of that. And we've also, over time, the things that have survived a tradition are, are well tested and are there for reasons. But when they're not, you know, our, our faculty, actually the first, were American boarding school with no Saturday classes. There were vestiges of them when I came, but it was the faculty that came to me and said, like, you're either all in or, or all out. Like, stop with the six of them that we had. So the short answer is I wish I could take credit. It's in the school it's in the people that we attract either to work or to be students here of a valuing of the past, but also looking to the future. And I think you've got to have a willingness to do those things. So I, I do feel comfortable that I can push us, but people also know, especially as a historian, that I'm very respectful of the past. And I've spent a lot of time understanding Choate and Rosemary Hall's histories. And you can't rewrite the past, you know, you, you would have seen in the UK particularly, they're trying to rewrite a lot of the past because of the the great forefathers who came and brought their wealth and changed cities, but because of their background and how they made their money, it feels like it's inappropriate and you've got to rewrite history. There's that history, but that doesn't take away actually from an experienced school, a historic school like yourself. It's about values. You talk about values and values are the bit that sit. All you're doing is, is making it fit for purpose and relevant for this generation, the next generation. You have to adapt. That's why you're a great school, but it's bedded and founded on these great values. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Do you think that technology enhances or gets in the way of creative collaboration in your experience? It can. We're a school that's known for technology and using technology, but I think it's very important that the technology is not the reason, it's the supporter. It has to be in support of what you're doing. So if you're actually spending all your time learning the app and not creating on it, you know, it's still teaching an architectural history class. And there is, I give them a creative assignment. You know, I don't want them spending all their time because the app allows them to do more of this or more of the other. And they're actually spending their time embedded in the technology of learning the 3D printer or whatever those things are. And it gets in the way of them doing the things. I will say, I'll just counter myself for a moment saying, but on the other hand, if my class causes them to get excited about a SketchUp program or the 3D printer and allows that creativity in a class to follow to blossom, then I can see it as part of a, a long-term creative effort. And so balancing between those two things of someone that just gets caught up in the technology and it becomes making it pretty for technology's sake, as opposed to growing and learning and endeavoring, then we lose it. So it's made a huge difference in, in so many ways that we can do things we couldn't do before. My students can make a 3D model of a building that they just couldn't have done before or, or make comparative images of the building over time. It's in service to the teaching. If you're not teaching key skills or giving them important and interesting material, you can have all the technology in the world and it's, it's a waste of time. My other thought on technology is, is that question of not technology for technology's sake, that actually the human interaction and why I'm so passionate about boarding schools comes back to what we said before about people being here together and spending time together. So I'm going to sound like the old guy that liked the technology of their time and is worried about all those young people are going to be doing in the future. I am a little worried about virtual reality 
in that if we're living in a place where I can put a mask on and go to class in you know, some other place and have something that feels like we're together. And that COVID has shown us that with Zoom. It feels like we're in the same room together. We're having a good conversation. But the side conversation that actually matters, the walk up to the lunch in the evening, in the dorm, the learning that happens when you run into someone or a conversation continues after class or the five minutes before class. Zoom doesn't have that. We arrive, we go, the chit chat, the glue, the social glue. That's what we've missed the last two years. And our students were willing to do pretty much anything to come back in the fall of 20 after being away in the the spring, because that's what they missed. They were getting great classes. Social glue. I do a lot of keynotes on the future school. I've done one at Tabs. I've done one at Maze. And it always comes down to, so I'm I'm a technologist. So I love technology and I'll give my kids every piece of the latest technology, even as far as VR with you know, trialing it and doing it because I want them to be part of it and see it. But I'm with you. And and every time I do these presentations, schools buy technology because it's, you either get sold it because it's fulfilling some kind of salesperson's kind of marketing tagline, or you just feel like, oh, well, we just need to be doing technology for technology's sake. And we always forget the people, you know, humans are the ones that make it happen. And the technology is this enabler. And if we forget about those social, you know, I love the social glue. It is just social glue. It's the feeling you get. All that we've proven the last couple of years on lockdown is that technology has enabled us to carry on. Pre-internet, pre-video, we would have fallen over. Education would be two years behind and parents would be even more demented than they probably are. But we need to get back. And this is not a replacement. But what technology can do is it can then open up the opportunity for us to extend teaching and all the amazing educational opportunities and inspire kids in other parts of the world that maybe can't afford or get a choked education. Imagine tapping into that. That, to me, is the social piece that this could bring. But we're way off. It was one of the reasons, and I completely agree with that, and that, that's one of the things is not to just think of your own situation, but how it can go broader and cut down those distances. But to your point about where that technology fits and that. One of the reasons we chose iPads over laptops as a one-to-one was because we actually felt it was the one that would disappear the most. The, it boots up, it turns on immediately. You don't have to wait five minutes for it to boot up. It has the smallest form factor. I mean, again, the architecture and design factor of like, it's the thing that disappears the most. You can bring it out. You can use it for a period of time. You can put it away. The screen isn't as big, so you're not hidden so much behind it. All in the service of making sure that it does the job, but doesn't take over the space, whether visually, time-wise, or bells and whistles-wise. And the other bit is with technology, it's the personalization. That's what technology brings. So you teaching your lesson, the great thing about having digital resources is that every child or every student could probably learn at their own pace and they can use different things to still understand the topic or the concept of what you're trying to teach, but they can go off and explore it in their own different ways. And that's what I find technology can really bring and enhance so we can actually spread personalization. I would have done a lot better in my math A-level if I'd have had YouTube. You know, I watched my son, you know, we used to you know, desperately take notes with the person in the front and miss something. And I watched my son working through his math problems and going for an answer on the internet, watching a video three or four times. If only I'd had that. It's things like that where you've got an opportunity to extend learning or learn in different ways that just, you know, can be extraordinarily powerful. 
Yeah, I mean, the one thing I know we're, we're we're getting close to time, and I do appreciate you hanging on for this amount of time. The one bit that got me actually with, and it was on an iPad, and there was a teacher teaching um, how to draw a. You remember the charcoal kind of bowl of fruit? I remember that. And being in a class, doing it, and having pre-recorded it the night before, every student could just go at their own pace. You know, rewind because once the teacher's done it once, you forget about it. And I was blown away. And I went into the school. And I was going, Do you know what? That's it. There's certain applications of this that can really aid every child to get it. I want to wrap up. Final question. As well as leading, you also teach. You mentioned that. Why is that important to you? Let's leave with the selfish aspect, which is I began as a, as a teacher. It's what I love, whether it was coaching, classroom teaching. And it is gloriously fulfilling and important. I think, I think if you ask any teacher, the time in the classroom with our students is spectacular time. There are things that go along with it, like, you know, syllabus creation and grading and attending meetings and all those things that maybe aren't as extraordinary, but the classroom time is amazing. So it's fulfilling to me to do that. And that's a little bit selfish. The more professional answer, and actually more valid and more important, because I think selfish wouldn't be enough. It does keep me connected to what is going on in the classroom. So when I'm hearing conversations going on, I get to try it out. As we've tried to adjust our teaching styles, I put those things into practice. And, and so when a faculty member is talking about the challenges, it's helpful to have that experience. It's a small group of students, but I hear their feedback, what they're experiencing in the classroom. I think it's important, like when we changed our daily schedule, to experience it as well, to switch from 45-minute to 70-minute classes. There's an element that that really makes a, a giant difference for me to have experienced. And so there's the day-to-day aspect that makes a big difference in credibility in conversations and being informed as we move forward and working things out. So, you know, I'm trying iPads out. Oh, that's harder. Okay, I pre-recorded a video. That's how long it takes. So for me, replanning my whole my syllabus, I have to think about a faculty member doing it for four syllabi and understanding that. So I think, I think it plays an important role. I mean, you know, as I look forward, I'll probably do some more collaborative teaching that I've generally taught my course on myself. I have a faculty member that we'll probably actually join together next year and do something collaboratively. So that'll be an interesting test of, of a different teaching style and pushing myself a little bit more in that respect. It's interesting, it's valuable, and it's a tiny bit self-indulgent. But it's amazing you find the time to do all that. The truth is I teach one term in the spring. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm trying to make our notes every week. It's every day, you know. <laughs> I mean, and you're running a school and you're a father and you're, you know, all these things. So, um... <laughs> you know, it's nice in the spring and it's a senior seminar and, and uh, it really is a great way to sort of prepare them for their next stages and try some things out. All these places, it kind of goes to what we said before, of laboratory for learning, pushing yourself and trying things out and being like, oh, that didn't work so well. And having an environment where... Our students are very willing to share, and, and I invite that. It's been an amazing experience because of that. Thanks for this conversation, Alex. I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together. It's fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.